Okay, we are in First Peter, uh, chapter 1. Uh, up to this point in Peter's letter, he's been establishing some very encouraging truths for the church to, to cling to during difficult times, which is, you know, extremely timely for all of us right now. He's established um, the following. He said that Christians are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God to be born again into a living hope and that we're being kept by God until we receive a bulletproof inheritance from him. This is all really good stuff. Uh, we are looking forward to, as Christians, an unshakable kingdom. Doesn't that sound good? <laughs> unshakable. I don't know why, but for some reason, in a day like ours today, I just really like the sound of that. Now, this has all been pretty good news up to this point, but Peter is about to shift and to begin to talk about the reality of the hard things that these Christians have been going through. And I really appreciate this. Um, Peter isn't trying to pretend like everything's all right. And he doesn't expect them to either. And, and I find that many Christians uh, don't do this well, <laughs> right? Have you ever felt the pressure just to smile and pretend like everything's okay? You're in a really bad place and someone comes up and asks, hey, how you doing? And what do you say? Fine. You're a liar. Yeah, <laughs> fine. What is it? Oh, fine. We say that, right? It's just what comes out, fine. It, it, it reminds me, there was this old Lending Tree commercial. I just, I've always loved this commercial. It's like this guy, this kind of tall, skinny, older guy, and he's just got this kind of glazed over look on his face, and he's smiling, and he's like, this is my four-bedroom house in a beautiful community, and this is my new car, you know, it's an, and this, I, I, this is my golf course. And he's like, you know, how do I do it? I'm in debt up to my eyeballs, you know, someone help me. And that's what I, that's what I picture. It's like, that's what you look like sometimes is, you know, you're just pretending like everything's okay when it's not at all. Why do we do this? Why do we pretend? One of the things I really love about our church, and it's been this way from day one, is you don't have to pretend. Uh, even this morning, we see, you know, somebody comes up to lead sharing time and says the truth about what's going on and how God restored him. And I love that we can be honest about that. It's okay to say what I'm going through is hard. I'm really depressed right now, or I'm struggling and I'm doubting my faith. It's okay for us to say those things. And I think the reason that Christians are afraid to, to be honest is that we either think we're going to be judged harshly by other Christians, you know, because, you know, you say, oh, you're depressed. Oh, well, you know, you're not a very good Christian. You get that kind of thing you think, or we, we think that we're going to make God look bad, maybe. And the truth is, I've seen this thing where, you know, with somebody who's always talking about how negative everything is and how their life is horrible. And, you know, at some point you can, you can go too far with this and you're almost doing it just to get attention. I think yeah, this isn't what we're talking about. We're not talking about that. We're talking about just being honest about where you really are. And it's okay to do that. According to what Peter's telling us today, we don't have to pretend we can stop all that nonsense because the truth is trials and hardships are part of the deal. They always have been. They're part of the Christian life. Maybe you didn't know that's what you signed up for, right? But God's word could not be more clear. In fact, in, in John 16, 33, Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But then he says something really important, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So you see grief and hardship and you see joy and blessing at the same time. And we're going to see that in this passage today. So this morning, um, we're going to be talking a little about trials. Why are they part of the Christian's life? Uh, why does God allow them? What do they do for us? 
And how do we remain genuinely joyful and hopeful in the midst of them? So we're going to pick things up in verse 6, right after Jesus, or Jesus, Peter, different guy, uh, right after Peter has just listed out all of the amazing things that God has done for us. So 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing or so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's good stuff. <laughs> Okay, so verse starts. Uh, verse six starts out with Peter putting two things together that don't look like they should go together at all: great rejoicing and great distress. It's not clear in the English, but in the Greek, both of these are in the present tense, which means it's possible for a Christian to experience both extremes simultaneously. That sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? And the word rejoice, when you look at what the word rejoice means, it literally could be translated jumping for joy in our modern vernacular. Jumping for joy, that kind of rejoicing, right? And the word grieved is the same word used to describe what Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he went to the cross. And you can't get to two more polar opposite extremes than this. But Christians can experience both at the same time. In James 1, 2, this is uh, David and Chad have been going through James and Lapine, and they just went through this recently. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Doesn't that sound weird? <laughs> count it joy. You know, I'm just picturing, okay, you're about to meet a trial, and you're like, hey, it's pleased to meet you. You know, COVID, hey, great, it's so good to meet you. Ah, this is awesome. Well, I'm glad I ran into you. That's not, that, does, that sounds weird. Or think about what Job said after losing everything. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His suffering was real and his praise was real. And somehow they came together. Isn't that amazing? And I think we've all witnessed this paradox in the lives of our fellow brothers and sisters at times. They're going through an unbelievably hard time, a crushing time. And yet... They're filled with a peace and a comfort that literally makes no sense. And the only explanation for it is that God is present in their lives. His presence is unmistakable and tangible at those times. And I think this is what Peter is describing here. So as we go through this, first we're going to just kind of look at some of the characteristics of trials or hardships uh, that Peter mentions. The first thing he says about them in the text there is that they are happening now, but that there's an expiration date for a little while. So they're now, but for a little while. I'm glad that's in there. I like that. That means there's light at the end of the tunnel, right? That's a good thing to, to know. Soon we, will no longer, we won't be grieved by trials of any kind. And, and in comparison to eternity, they'll seem minuscule. Next, he says these hardships are varied. They come in varieties. <laughs> like, oh, that's, oh boy. It reminds me of those, have you ever had those jelly beans that come in the most gross, just the grossest flavors you can, I mean, what? why? Why is there an earwax flavored jelly bean? Dog food. 
I mean, they go there. It gets worse than that. I won't even, you know, uh, yeah, rotten egg. It's like, why? And that's what I've, but hey, but you get a variety. That's that's what Paul's describing here. All kinds of different flavors for you to enjoy. <laughs> so what what kind of varieties do we have? What kind of, of hardships can we expect? Well, there's just what I would call common suffering. This would be kind of broken world suffering. It, it, it happens to everybody indiscriminately. You get a flat tire, right? You, you break an arm, you lose a job, you lose a loved one. These are the kinds of things that happen to everybody. They're, they're not targeted to, towards you. That's one kind of suffering. Then there's another kind of suffering that I would call the you brought that on yourself <laughs> kind of suffering. Some of you are familiar with that flavor, right? Uh, you're experiencing suffering, but it's completely your own fault, right? The, the reason you keep getting speeding tickets, it's because you speed everywhere you go. You don't have to. It's not like, you know, there's no conspiracy. The man's not out to get you. It's not. That's what people, my son's this way. I'm not, he's not here, but this is the kind of stuff he's like, ah, oh, you know, no, you're doing this, right? That's play stupid games. You get stupid prizes. That's, that's what happens here. So there's no mystery as to why this suffering exists. This is, you've done this. That's another kind. And then there's what, what I would just call unjust suffering. Um, this is you know, often what Christians experience simply because they are followers of Christ. They're not doing anything specific to, you know, to deserve it necessarily. And, and they're, you know, um, it, it's targeted because they're, they're simply following Christ. And this is something Christians in our country haven't had to deal with a whole lot but that seems to be changing rapidly. I, th- I think we need to be more ready for this. The longer uh, time goes on, the more we hold to the Word of God, the more this is going to be a common occurrence for us. And I think this last kind of suffering is primarily what Peter has in mind as he's writing this letter. But the truth is God can use all of these flavors to accomplish his purposes, which is what we're going to see as we move through this today. There's one other descriptor that Peter uses here, and I kind of wish it wasn't there. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. If necessary. This is where it starts to get kind of hard because if necessary implies a couple of things. First, it means that it may or may not be necessary for trials to come into our lives, which tells us they have a purpose when they do come. And secondly, it implies that someone other than me gets to determine said necessity. I don't like that part. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) I want to decide, you know, because quite frankly, I don't think I should ever have any trials. I understand why you people might need them, (laughs) but I, I don't, I'm, I'm good. Right. That's how we think at least. But the good news in all of this is that we have a good, good father. And he is the one who determines the necessity. It's what he does. It's what he does. It's like for the song people out there. And we are loved by him as his children, right? That's the good news. Knowing that he's good and that he loves us and that he's, that he's, that he's, uh, treats us like children makes all the difference in the world. I'm a father of five kids and I had the responsibility of training them along with my wife. And let's just say that the level of necessity varied greatly between them. Some of my kids learned very quickly Some of them took a lot more convincing. Uh, Some of them would just fall in line with a good stern look. You could just be like, and they would be like, you know, I give up, right? 
I, we had this thing where I would do, they hate this still to this day. Uh, this, this is like stop, I think, in sign language. So like from across the room, if they were doing something, I could be like, you know. And they would know, like, okay. And then there were those kids that would be like, oh, yeah? You know, <laughs> you coming at me? You know, it's like that. there was those kids. So some it would take just a stern look, and others it was more like it would take waterboarding. Not, not really, but that's, that's how they acted. That's what they, I remember like, you know, I'll pick on Zane again. That was the son I was talking about, but he doesn't, he's not even going to listen. I remember like being in the store when he was really little and he's doing something, you know, and I'd go to grab his arm to like, you know, Hey, and he'd be like, you're trying to kill me in the middle of the store. And of course, you know, I'm like, no, we're not trying to do that. You know, Hey, let's go out to the car, son. You know, let's where nobody can see us. It's like, They all had to be disciplined. By the way, the word discipline has some baggage. Um, it, it could even trigger some of you, depending on what was called discipline in your house growing up. Um, it helps me to associate it with the word disciple. When we, when I, when we talk about discipling somebody, that's, that's the, where we get the word discipline. It means training and correction. It doesn't mean beating your children. That's not what we're talking about here when we talk about discipline. And I know some people have experienced that. That's not godly. That's not biblical. Um, but training and discipling your children is. Now, here's the interesting thing about discipling my kids. It had to be varied. It was for a little while, and it was necessary. It's the same thing we read in Peter about these trials that come. It had to be varied because my kids were also different, right? If you have somebody that's an extrovert, super outgoing, wants to be around people, and you put them in their room, that's torture. But, But if you put my daughter Mackenzie in her room, but she's an introvert. It's like you just sent her to Disneyland. I mean, it's like, yes, this is great. You're, there's no punishment there. She loves it. Perfect. So you had to vary it. It was for a little while. It went fast. I'm kind of surprised how fast it went. It was a short period of time. I can't discipline them anymore. They're all grown and gone. You know, it's kind of weird now if I try to, you know, can't, I can't put my son over my knee anymore. He would, he would hurt me if I tried to do that. I can't, it won't work. And it was necessary. It was not an option for me. None of my kids liked discipline. And they usually didn't agree with my, my decisions. You know, if I were to ask them for a vote, they would have all chose, you know, no, I don't think I should be disciplined for this, just like I said a minute ago. And if I'm being honest, I didn't like to discipline them. It was, it's a hard thing to do. But I did it because I loved them so much. I cared about things. Um, I knew what would happen if I, if I didn't correct them. So I cared about where they went, who they were going with, uh, what time they were going to be home, what they were wearing. I mean, they used to, my kids got to the point where they would ask me like a week ahead of time just to prepare me. Cause I would have all these questions and they knew I was going to have tons of questions. You know, who, what are their, did their parents know? Are they, who's going to be there? What, you know, and I'd want to figure all this out because I cared about their future and I cared about how they would turn out. And if I didn't care about those things, I would have let them do whatever they wanted. So my discipline proved that I loved my kids, and they knew that to some degree then and to a much greater degree now, of course. And it also proved that they were my kids. You know, I didn't discipline other people's kids, uh, though I wanted to many times. <laughs> Joy told me that would be inappropriate, so I didn't. Um, but I disciplined my own kids. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11 explains this very thing clearly from God's vantage point. If we are legitimately God's kids, and if he loves us, we can expect necessary discipline from him. This is what it says in Hebrews 12, verse 5. 
My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. In verse 7, it says, endure hardship as discipline, hardship, suffering, trials. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That helps answer the question as to why trials come. And I know my kids always appreciate it when I would tell them why they were getting disciplined. If I sat them down and explained, hey, this is what's going on. This is why we're doing this. Do you understand? That meant a lot to them. (laughs) Knowing helps, right? If I just started, you know, going crazy on them and they're like, what do you know, you need to let them know. God lets us know. He lets us in on the reason. It's because he loves us. It's because we are his kids. And it's because it will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And that's the same thing we want for our own kids, isn't it? We want them to be good people whose lives aren't full of chaos because of the choices they make. There's another reason for trials that Peter mentions in verse 7. Again, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that... The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is telling us that God allows trials to come into our lives to prove that our faith is real, which is extremely kind of him. Now, of course, he knows if our faith is real. There's no question in his mind. He understands that part. But he wants us to be assured because it will help us to keep on keeping on. It will help us to persevere. The more I'm convinced that he is in my life, the easier it is for me to carry on and have hope. He also wants other Christians to see this faith. A genuine faith in somebody else that we watch, it's, it's amazing what that does for us. Have you ever watched another Christian just go through something amazingly hard and just, just be filled with joy and peace through it? What does it do for your faith? It just makes God all the more real. It makes the gospel all the more real. I'm thinking of a brother right now that that is going through something unimaginable in his family. Heartbreaking. And and I watch him. I watch this peace. I watch this comfort that he has. I watch this belief that he has in God. I watch it. He's just being sustained through it in a way that makes no sense. Kind of reminds me of remember Stephen when he was when he was being persecuted in the book of Acts, chapter six. They they seize seize seize, seize Stephen. Can't say that. They seize him. And, and basically it says that they, they looked at his face while he was going through this. And what did his face look like? The face of an angel, you know, they're, they're, they're going to kill this guy. They're going to brutally take him out. And, and they see this peace on his face that, that, that is what it's, it's the presence of God in his life. God also wants non-Christians to see this faith and be absolutely confounded by it. Right. When, when somebody watches a Christian going through something else, and they're going, what, how, how, you know, scratching their head going, what in the world? How do you, 
You know, and later on in, in Peter, he's, they're going to say, they're going to come to you and say, what is the reason for the hope that you have? Tell me more about this God that you believe in. I don't know how you're doing this, but I want this. God uses trials in the life of a Christian, just like a goldsmith uses fire to test gold to find out if it's the real thing. This is how a goldsmith tests with fire. I Googled it. It was amazing. I read this and I was just like, this is incredible. Step one, apply the flame to the gold. Okay, turn up the heat. Step two, watch the gold. And see if it changes. See how it changes. If it darkens, it's not gold. Pure gold gets brighter and brighter as you apply the flame. And I was just like, yes. You know why it gets brighter? Because they see Jesus. They see Christ in us. That's why it gets brighter. Not because the quality of your faith is so awesome. It's because they see the reality of Christ in us. That's what's supposed to happen to a person with Christ in them. I've met a lot of people over the years that claim to have a saving faith. If they do, there should be evidence in their lives to confirm that claim. And, and uh, Peter, uh, you know, it, or this, this section reminds me even of like the sower and the seeds. You remember that parable that Jesus taught? And he talked about, uh, you know, you'd throw seed in some areas and different things would happen. Well, one of them sprang up quickly. You know, there was a claim of belief. There was a, it looked like something was happening there. But the minute the trials came, what happened? It, it choked out, it withered and it died. There was no real faith there at all. It just looked like it for a minute. And that's, that's a heartbreaking thing to think about, that there are people out there right now that think something's going on when it's not going on. Genuine faith will hold up under trials because Christ is present in us. That's a sign of actual belief. When we have joy, when our faith is tested, that proves Jesus is there. That doesn't mean trials aren't hard. I don't want to make light. Some of you have been through things that I can't imagine. And I don't mean to make light of those trials. It doesn't mean they're not hard. It does mean that Christians can remain joyful and hopeful in the midst of them because Jesus is with us. I couldn't help but think of the story in Daniel of, you remember, uh, it's actually Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah, but we'll call them what? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those were their Babylonian names, which they didn't really probably want. But that's how we, Shadrach and Benny, if you're a VeggieTales person. <laughs> You remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar that basically said, everybody must bow down and worship the statue of myself that I've made. And if they don't, they'll be thrown into a fire. And the three of them said, well, that's not going to work for us. You know, we're not going to do that. What do you mean you're not going to do that? Do you understand the consequences? Yeah, we do. We understand, but we also know that our God can save us and that we won't, even if he doesn't, you know, what we're not going to do. We're not going to bow down to another God because he's the, the only God we will bow down to. And what did Nebuchadnezzar do? He got fired up. Well, that was bad. Sorry. I didn't. I No, no, that was a striker from the record. That was not. That was not. That was not right. He did increase the fire. I was really not trying for a cheap joke there. That just came out. He increased the, 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 the furnace like 10 times hotter than it normally was. And he threw them in there. I'll show them. And, and what happened? <laughs> He's like, didn't we just throw three guys in there? There's a fourth one in there now. And, and, and he said, he, you know, he kind of looks like the son of man. I don't know, you know, what he's saying there, but it's like, I'm pretty sure I know who that was. I'm pretty sure Jesus was with them in the fire. And, and what happens after a while, he says, hey, guys, hey, um, go ahead and come on out. By the way, the guys that threw them into the fire, 
instantly incinerated. It was so hot. And then he calls him out. You know, unsinged, not a hair burned, not even a smell of fire on them. Christ was with them through the fire and, it, and they remained unaffected. Now, I can't remember the terror. You know, the, I can't imagine the terror they must have felt knowing they were going to be thrown in there. And, but then I also see this peace and joy. You know, you see them again simultaneously coming together. It's amazing. I know that it sounds weird that sorrow and joy can simultaneously exist together. It seems counterintuitive. Uh, if I, if I'm having joy that, you know, sorrow doesn't make sense. If I'm sorrowful, joy doesn't make sense. And yet for the Christian with a living hope, these can happen simultaneously, depending on what your joy is tied to. See, if your joy is tied to circumstance, it, it may not, it may not hold up, right? If your joy is tied to money, what happens when the money gets taken? Your joy gets taken. Right? If, you're, if your joy is tied to a, a person, a, a relationship or something like that, and that person goes away, what happens to your joy? It goes away. But if your joy is tied to Jesus, what can take it away? Sorrow can't steal your joy. Nothing can. In fact, trials are even, I would say they're even meant to drive us toward Jesus, who is the source of our joy, which in a weird way <laughs> means that sorrows can actually increase our joy. It's crazy to think about, but it's true. It takes faith to experience this joy in the midst of a trial. And, and that might sound hard to you, but, but Peter's going to give you another example of something that takes faith. Because I think we all realize that that, that's, that, doesn't, that sounds hard. I don't know if I can do that. Well, you've done it before because you've believed in a Savior that you've never met face to face. You've fallen in love with somebody that you've never seen. And you fully trust this person with your life and with your eternity. And you've never actually met him face to face yet. It's the same faith to go through a trial. It is to believe in Christ. And look at verse eight. Though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How can we experience joy when we're going through difficulties? By faith. How can you believe in Jesus when you haven't seen him? By faith. And he will prove to you over and over and over that he's real, that he's present, that he's there, and that, that he sustains you. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now without, I'm sorry, different verse. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. And then what is the outcome of this faith? Why is it so important that we figure out if it's real or not? It tells us it's the salvation of your soul. That's what's at stake. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, in verse 9 it says. And I love that someday this faith will be celebrated. I don't know how this works, but it basically says the tested genuineness, genuineness of our faith will result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. And when I read that, I think, of course, that means to Jesus. But actually the way it's written, it sounds like it's to us. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Like when we stand before Jesus, the genuineness of our faith will be celebrated by heaven. I'd love the thought of that. I don't deserve that because he's the one that gave me the faith in the first place. But there's something about a Christian entering into heaven that will cause great celebration. Well, I hope that today's text helps us think about trials and sufferings and hardships in a different way. Because I think a lot of Christians, quite frankly, are surprised by any suffering that comes their way. And much of this comes from a false gospel. I hate to even call it a gospel, but a false gospel that's, that's infected the church, the prosperity gospel that has come in and, and basically said, 
believe in Jesus and all your wildest dreams will come true, right? That's, that's not the gospel. That's Pedro. That's not, you know, that's a false thing. You will have trials. Jesus promised that. First Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, if you're like me, my normal reaction to trials is to get out from under it as quickly as possible. <laughs> like, if it's uncomfortable, if it's awkward, if it hurts, I want out now. Like, fine, no, let me get a bus pass, uh, I'm out. That's, or I despair when suffering comes, and I begin to doubt and lose hope. The Bible goes out of its way to warn us of these hardships so that we won't be surprised by them and to remind us of God's purpose in them so that we won't look for the quickest way out and begin to despair. And the other great news in regards to the hardships is that uh, we don't have to face this alone. You're not an only child. God has given us brothers and sisters, family, to walk through this together. We don't have to go it alone. There are other exiles, elect exiles, walking this journey with us. They're going through similar trials. Sometimes we're going to be the ones to come alongside them and help them through, and sometimes they're going to be the ones to come alongside us. But I love that we're not in this alone. It, uh, this was a stupid thing I thought of, but, um, you know, the, the A-team, the, you know, that kind of a uh, – I know it's a horrible way to end the service. But, you, you know, you had the, this, this group of knuckleheads – sorry – uh, that, that basically were teamed together. I mean, they, they couldn't function in normal society apart from each other. They come together and they make this unstoppable team because they have all the little parts and pieces to make it work, right? And, and I feel like that's what the church is. You know, we're the A-team. We're God's A-team. And I, I love this idea that each one of us has a part to play. And if we don't gather together, this is part of the reason that, you know, some of what's going on right now in regards to what we have to do in the church, we just need to, to be make a firm decision about this. We need each other. Gathering is not, you know, it's not an option. We have to do this. We have to be together because we've got to be there for each other. So praise God that he's given us a wonderful church, a wonderful family, and these wonderful promises for us to cling to. Father, thank you so much for this this passage in First Peter that just lets us know, Lord, we know the reality of this, that, that we will go through trials, and yet we will have a joy that doesn't make any sense because you're with us. Your Holy Spirit is inside of us. Your presence is with us. And that means that we can have hope no matter what. And it's, just a, it's such a wonderful reminder, Lord. We thank you so much for what Jesus Christ has done for us. Lord, we are sinners. We are undeserving of your grace. We're undeserving of your mercy. And yet you have just had compassion on us. And you've loved us and adopted us as children if we would just place our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. So Lord, if there's anybody listening right now, um, that has never fully trusted Jesus as their Savior. I pray that right now they would, they would just bow before you as their Lord and Creator, the God who made them and loves them, and that they would surrender completely to you, that they would trust in, in the Savior that you've given us, Lord, Jesus Christ, who died, was buried, and rose again so that we could have life, that they would place their faith in him, and that they would live. In Jesus' name, amen.